0: DiscerningHearts.com presents Hope in Difficult Times with Saint Therese and her family with Father Timothy Gallagher. This podcast is an audio taken from a Discerning Hearts retreat conducted by Father Timothy Gallagher, which features the lives of Saint Therese of Lisieux, Saints Louis and Zelé Martin, Servant of God Leone Martin, and the entire Martin family. The video taken at this retreat can be found in this episode post on discerninghearts.com, or you can find it on the Discerning Hearts YouTube channel. We now begin Conference 5.
1: So let's just pick right up with where we were last time. And our next letter is this of Celie to her sister-in-law, July 24th, 1874. And the background to this, as we may recall from yesterday, is that Leonie has just returned after her second failed attempt to do the schooling with the Visitation Sisters. I'm very satisfied with my two oldest daughters, and on the other hand, I'm deeply saddened to see Leonie as she is. Sometimes I have hope, but often I lose heart. Just reverently, I'm sure we can all resonate with that. My sister told me, however, that she's convinced that Leonie will become a saint. She also said uh, before she died, Elise, her sister, that someday Leonie will be a visitation sister. Of course, that's what happened. When Leonie uh, finally enters, well, this is actually her third try, Therese writes and she reminds her of that. All right, what do you do now with Leonie? So boarding school is obviously out. She's too undisciplined for that. She needs schooling somehow. She's already way behind in her studies. So Zelie makes another try. She, Leonie, going to take lessons in the afternoon at the home of two elderly women, former nuns. It's a little puzzling, former nuns. You know, just what does that mean? Who taught in the past and can cope better. So these were former sisters. They're actually wearing their religious habit and they were teachers, and so this seems like, and it's reasonably close, it just seems like an ideal solution that she's found what she needs for Leonie. I'm happy to have found them, but it's painful to have to go there because she'd be much better off with her sisters, Marie and Pauline. Six months later, again to her sister-in-law, I'm having so many problems with my poor Leonie. You know that every day she was taking lessons in the home of two elderly retired nuns. I wasn't dissatisfied with the way they were teaching her. So that seems to be going reasonably well in terms of the teaching. And then all of a sudden, I discovered something about these so-called good sisters that absolutely prevents me from continuing to entrust Leonie to them. Now, watch what happens here, how Celie gets involved in the following scenario, which as we'll see, she describes as the two most disturbing weeks of my life. Imagine that they let languish a poor eight-year-old child. So this is Armandine, and her last name is simply given as a V. They'd adopted supposedly out of charity. So they had offered to take charge of this eight-year-old girl. The mother was really happy, probably a little bit like Celie here, to think that she'd found a place where her daughter would be very happy and well cared for. Imagine that they let languish a poor eight-year-old child they'd adopted supposedly out of charity. I began to learn of this story two months ago. Before acting, I wanted to be very sure of what I suspected because it would cost me a great deal to denounce them. For the first time in her life, Zelie is going to get involved with the police. But last Thursday, an event made up my mind completely. And now notice that this is not about one of her own children. This is about another eight-year-old girl whom until now she has not known at all. Well, I mean, through Leonie, of course, she's been aware of this girl. There's a big uproar here that I won't begin to tell you, but which has already caused me and will still cause me, because she's right in the middle of it now, a great deal of concern and a lot of aggravation. I was able to obtain a place at the refuge for the little girl. This is a place run by sisters. Understanding that this poor little girl's situation was so bad with these two supposed nuns, Zelie goes out and finds a place where she can go, and that's this refuge run by sisters. I'm waiting for her mother, so she'll take her there. I told the sisters, these are the so-called sisters, the whole truth of what I thought of them. These hypocrites who pray or pretend to pray to God from morning till night, and I took Leonie away from them. If I were these two so-called sisters playing this game, and I was confronted with a woman like Celie, I'd be kind of nervous about it. And this, you just see another side of her here. Just watch how she moves forward with this. Because these nuns, I'll call them nuns, but they're not real nuns, are very clever in what they're doing. This next letter is the longest that we'll see. And when I was putting these together, I attempted to just shorten it, just see parts of it, but I don't think you can. So we'll just go through the whole letter. And again, think of Zelie writing this. This is about maybe three and a half single spaced typed words. Imagine her how many pages there she sits at night writing this letter to Pauline. It's interesting, too, that she goes into detail here in this letter to Pauline that she doesn't when she writes to her sister-in-law. So this is four days after the preceding letter. My dear little girls, I received your letters which made me, and look at the two adverbs, which made me very, very happy. You know, she describes the sufferings and so on, but there, this thread is is deep in all of this, that the joy in her children. You know what struck me as I was going through these letters, and I'll probably say it later on, why is a saint? Well, if the heart of our living our faith is the great commandment, which is to love God and to love our neighbor, Every sentence that we read here, through every sentence transpires this woman's heart. And what is the core of everything is that she loves. She loves her children. She loves her husband. She loves her God. And she loves her neighbor, as we'll see here. And not only does she love, but she loves, I'd almost want to apply Jesus' words, you know, in John 13 at the beginning, having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end. In the way John writes, there's a double sense to that. In the end, that is to the utmost possibility of love, utmost degree of love, and to the last moment of his life. And that's Celie. She has her human foibles. You know, she worries too much. She's too driven in some ways and so on, like we all do. But this unmistakably comes through everything. This is a woman who loves with all her heart, as she'll say in the letters, and really to the end. So here she's getting involved in, um, at some personal cost in the situation of this young girl from another family. I see you enjoyed yourselves a lot, much more than I did, because I can tell you that I just went through the most disturbing two weeks of my life, and we've seen a lot of this life. So that's saying a lot when she says this. You're going to ask yourself, so what happened that was so distressing? And perhaps you're going to find that it's nothing when I explain to you that it's about little Armandine. Since I have nothing new to write to you about other than this, because this is occupying all of her energy and time right now, I'm going to tell you the whole story. You know what an unshakable aversion I had to upsetting the good sisters because she has such reverence and respect as we've seen for religious life. And even that longing that was always somewhere in her there, a kind of nostalgia for it. So she has great respect for these sisters, and she doesn't want to upset them. These sisters who are giving lessons to Leonie. It was stronger than I was. I couldn't bring myself to do it, to overcome that unwillingness. But the Thursday after you left, I learned some things that shook me so much that all my scruples vanished. They had left Armandine without anything to eat from morning until 3.30 in the afternoon. That is to say, at noon they gave her five or six spoonfuls of soup. It's true, they would have dined earlier had it not been for a visitor who detained them, so she wants to be as fair as she can. Finally, at 3.30, they gave her a tiny piece of bread with a little fat from the cold beef stew while they themselves ate mutton. The little one begged them to at least give her a little piece of cheese, and they called her bold. So she had to content herself with her dry bread, and in such small quantity, that she pleaded with them for some more, which they brutally refused. We know enough about Zélie's maternal heart to know that she's not going to sit by idly when a child is being treated this way. Léonie had forgotten to bring her the afternoon snack, which I usually prepared for this child. And there you see both Zelie and Leonie. Leonie doesn't get done what she should get done. And here is Zelie even before she knows this story, because it looks like, which I usually prepared that she is sending uh, some kind of food with Leonie every day for this child, even before she knows this story. In the evening, while going to pick up Leonie, the maid, that's Louise, saw Armandine looking haggard and asked her, are you sick? She replied, I have a stomachache. They don't want to give me anything to eat. They gave me so little that I'm as starved as I was before. When they told me this, so Leonie and Louise come back, and then they recount to Tzeli what this young girl has said. When they told me this, I was so outraged. I didn't want to take the time to have dinner. I immediately wrote to the priest in Banay, so that's where uh, where the little one is from, to question him about Armandine's mother, and if she would consent to come for her daughter and put her in the refuge. The next day, I sent the little one two slices of bread and jam in a basket she'd forgotten at our house the other day, which tells us that apparently Armandine does visit in the Martin home, probably together with Leonie. I had a premonition that everything was going to be exposed that day, so I told Leonie how she had to respond. My predictions came true. Armandine, for fear of being discovered that she has this food, hid her basket under her apron, even though Leonie had advised her not to do it so she wouldn't look like she was hiding anything. That's all it took, and the good sisters wanted to see what she was hiding. Finally, an hour later, I received a a visit from Sister Saint Louis, so one of the two women. My heart was pounding very strongly but I decided not to show her any consideration and I was even happy that the situation had presented itself so that now she has the opportunity to speak directly to one of these women. I told her why I sent bread to this child and in terms the sister probably found too strong. I would have loved to hear what, uh, what she said to this sister. However, she wasn't angry. She was even laughing the entire time. She took my hands I offered to provide bread for the little one on the condition that they would let her eat as much as she wanted. She answered, laughing the whole time that she wouldn't promise that. Then she left still laughing. When the maid went to get Léonie, so it was later that day, the scene had changed. Sister Saint-Louis was crying and playing the persecuted saint saying that this was one more pearl in her crown. She said God had suffered a lot more and she would return good for evil and take care of my daughter with as much love and concern as in the past. Louise was confused. So Louise doesn't see through this all that clearly. This woman seems to be saying holy things and and presenting herself as loving. But Celise sees much more clearly. As for me, I didn't let myself be taken in because I knew more or less who I was dealing with. My intention was to remove Leonie, but I thought it would be better to send her the next day, which was Saturday, so now it'd be two days after all of this comes out, in order to have Armandine come to our house on Sunday so she can feed her and hear her story. I thought the sisters wouldn't dare refuse me this, and I wanted to question her in depth. Can you see how involved Zelie is getting in this, and how relentless she is when she sees clearly a need. So Saturday morning, I went to the refuge. Faced with such a deed, when she explains what's going on with Armandine, the superior welcomed my request right away. She told me they didn't have room, but they would make a place for my protege. Finally, on Sunday, I had the little one with me who had been badly beaten because of all of this. Then she said to me, you know, madame, since you spoke to them, I eat all that I want. And she told me the foolishness of every kind that Sister Saint-Louis had rattled off against me. So now they begin to attack Zelie, and she knows this is likely to happen. I was committed. That sentence says the whole thing. That night, I wrote a beautiful letter to Sister Saint-Louis, a letter that would have moved the heart of a rock. I assure you, it was nicely phrased. I would love to see that letter too. I thanked her for the good care she had given my daughter, but I informed her that given the present situation, I thought I shouldn't send her to them anymore. In addition, I'd thoroughly persuaded the little one to go to the refuge. She was looking forward to it and had promised to give her mother a warm welcome when she comes to get her. So that's the situation now that the place has been assured for her with the other sisters, and they're waiting for the mother to come take her from these two sisters and to the refuge. Tuesday, a woman who prepared the child's work for Armandine worked a little on lace, and she'll say it, I think, somewhere in the letters, that these two supposed nuns had her doing their own work around the house and so on. It's just an awful situation. Tuesday, a woman who prepared the child's work for Armandine worked a little on lace went to the sister's home the little one begged her to quickly come find me so that I let her mama know right away to come get her because the sisters made her very unhappy. The next day, I sent Louise and Leonie to thank the nuns and pay them. Sister St. Louis was just about to leave to pay me a visit, unwise woman. Louise said to her, don't go, sister. It's possible something unpleasant will be said. She answered, I want to go there. She did indeed arrive with a courtesy I can't describe. She assured me while trying to cry that if I'd thought she was a saint, she wanted to humble herself before me and free me of this notion. She went on like this for a quarter of an hour. I answered, but sister, you use the language of a saint. The saint spoke no better than you do. Her face glowed because she thought she had won me over with her humility and I was going to throw myself at her feet. I continued, so, sister, do you regret what you made the child endure? Then her face took on a fierce expression, and she declared that none of my accusations were true. I answered her coolly without getting angry, that everything I accused her of in my letter was the truth. She left controlling her rage as well as she could. Then I received a letter from the priest in Banay, who had known these unfortunate people these two supposed nuns. He told me they had never been nuns. They'd worn the habit without any right to do so, and he had thrown them out of his parish. He said he wasn't surprised by what had taken place and was going to inform Armandine's mother. Seeing that she wasn't able to convince me by her humility, Sister Saint-Louis, so she makes another try, sent uh, Mademoiselle Y., To see me on Thursday, Mademoiselle E. is a good person taken in by beautiful speeches and who, in spite of all that the child had revealed, didn't want to believe me. I told her that nothing would be able to shake my conviction and that I wouldn't have gotten so involved without being sure of the facts. Then she told me the little one had confided in her That she was going to leave for the refuge and that I had written to her mother. And that worries Zelie a bit because she's afraid this will get back to these two sisters. This revelation did not make me happy. I was afraid this young woman would take the initiative and prevent me from carrying out my plan. Finally, from Thursday to Saturday, I heard nothing. I was already anxious. It seemed to me I would see Armandine's mother at any moment. And then what would happen? I foresaw many difficulties but I never suspected those that awaited me. About four o'clock in the afternoon, I saw a woman come up to one of our windows that was slightly open, and she asked me if number 36 was nearby. That's the Martin residence. I realized right away that she was the little one's mama. She came in and said to me, I just left the sister's house. Watch this. I took hold of my child and wanted to take her with me. As I reached the doorway, they opened their window and shouted, Help! a child abductor. A crowd gathered and four sturdy men snatched the little one from my hands while the sisters were spewing a flood of foolish marks directed at you, madame, and at me. Faced with this situation, I asked for Mademoiselle X, who knew everything and had offered to act as an intermediary if necessary. She immediately went to find the sisters to explain all the trouble they would get into by acting this way. They wanted to hear nothing of it, saying that they would go all the way to the end. So I saw myself forced to go with your father, I for the first time in my life to the police station. The police chief wasn't there. They told us they would not remove a child under these conditions. The matter would not be resolved for a while. And finally, perhaps we could see the police chief the next day, but it wasn't certain. The poor mother was devastated. She's a good person who had entrusted her child to the sisters. Persuaded that by doing so, she was ensuring her happiness. The nuns had made her beautiful promises to the point that Armandine would inherit all that they owned. I thought my child was very happy, she continued, because she just wrote me that she was the happiest little girl in Alençon. Probably would not have been allowed to write anything other than that. Your father, that's Louis, hearing this was outraged by such a deception and exclaimed, so the other children are like Blessed Labre, who ate cabbage cores from the garbage. He was, we would call him today a homeless person, but a real saint, just amazing the spectrum of sanctity. And he ate, obviously, very poorly. So this saint and the way he ate comes to Louise's mind when he hears how they're feeding Armandine. While feeling we had done our duty, he regretted, however, the child's fate that had become known to us. I didn't sleep that night. That is, I had in total two hours of nightmares. I dreamt I saw the little girl emaciated, begging me to have pity on her, and across from her, the face of Sister St. Louis appeared as a diabolical vision, and I woke up with a start. So, now she takes a further step. So I got up early the next morning and wrote to the police chief to tell him this woman's story who couldn't remain in Alanson for long because she has a small business. I was insistent that he settle the matter as soon as possible. I even added that she would live on his doorstep until she could see him, quite determined not to leave it in spite of the rain. That makes you think of the parable of the woman and the unjust judge, you know, she just will not leave him in peace. He didn't wait long, so receiving a letter of that kind, he moves into action. He received her and said many complimentary things about your father. During this time, I was at high mass. There was a sermon, but I don't know what they preached about. That's how much I was absorbed in my thoughts. I'm sure you're bored with this long epistle. I doubt that. However, my children, all of this is an event for me. I believe God permitted this thing to expose these unfortunate people and snatch their prey from them. Now, if the police had not taken action... Zelie sees what would have happened, and it would have been uh, to her detriment. If they had succeeded in keeping the little one for a longer time, they would have taken advantage of it by getting everyone to think badly of me. Out of malice, they would say, I'd wanted to rob them of their protege for my own benefit, but the law decided in their favor. See, the the police didn't take any action. So all of the malice is on the part of Zelie. They would have believed it and people would have believed it and i truly had a narrow escape finally thank god i was relieved of this problem but leonie is still there and what to do about it so that problem is unsolved i believe the more she goes the more she finds it difficult to learn i don't know what's going to become of all this however if after many trials and tribulations i can succeed as i did with little armandine I'll be happier than if she had given me satisfaction. I wanted to entertain you with little stories about Therese, which she does in many of these letters. But this will be for another time. She talks continuously about Marie and Pauline, who are in Le Mans. Yesterday, little Therese fell against the table leg and cracked her forehead down to the bone. The split was a good centimeter wide, and I think it will leave a lifelong scar. And the editors note that that was not the case. I'm devastated over it. Your father sends you a kiss, and I do too, your loving mother. So there you see another side of Zelie. You know, she sees a situation of suffering like this. She just doesn't let anything stop her, even the unwillingness of the police, as you see there. She reverses the situation of this young girl. There's actually a sequel to this, because later these supposed sisters try again a few years later to try to defame Zelie and so on and uh, purport that the young girl wants to be with them. Uh, but of course, everything is known at that point.
0: We'll return to Hope in Difficult Times with St. Therese and her family with Father Timothy Gallagher in just a moment.
1: Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless.
0: Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. We now return to Hope in Difficult Times with St. Therese and her family with Father Timothy Gallagher.
1: Next is the only letter that we have conserved from Zélie to her sister Élise, Sister Marie d'Ocite. She wrote, obviously, a number of letters, and it was the, the maid who's the reason we don't have them. She burned them, maybe just making fire or whatever. It's, it's a great loss that we don't have the letters that Celie wrote to her sister. So this is written August 31st. They've obviously just been to one of their summer vacation trips with their cousins in Lixiu. I was delighted by our trip in Lixiu. I have a sister-in-law who has a kindness and a sweetness that are incomparable. Marie says that she doesn't know her to have any faults, and neither do I. I find that Isidore, in spite of all his problems, and that'll be his worries about his business, is very happy to have such a wife. It would take a long time to tell you her virtues, but that will be for later. I assure you that I love her as much as a sister. That's what I mean about love. It spreads out to everyone with whom she has contact. I love her as much as a sister, and she seems to feel the same way and shows my children an almost maternal affection. We've mentioned she would become kind of their mother after Celie's death. She showed them every possible attention and did everything to make our lives pleasant. If I seemed worried, she looked at me with sympathy. This seemed to hurt her. Marie quickly came over to say to me, Mama, please look more cheerful. My aunt thinks you're sad and she's hurt over it. I answered her, leave me alone, I can't do better, and I reproached myself for it. Monday, we were in the countryside. I went there reluctantly to accompany the others. Again, she's, as she says, she's like one of those fish that Louis pulls out of the water. It's just everything in her, it's like a magnet, you know, wants to be back home uh, in her place. We settled in a meadow to rest, and during this time, my sister-in-law secretly, because she knows Zelie will resist this, went to prepare a snack for us. When she brought it to us, I was so upset at the trouble she went to that I was far from showing appropriate gratitude. She contented herself with laughing at my apparent coldness. It's not very often in these letters that we see the the reversal of the pattern. What we're seeing in every letter is Zayli going out to love and assist and help others. On the occasions when she is the recipient of this kind of thing, it's as though she doesn't quite know how to respond to this, you know. She is so utterly other-centered that this just somehow is just hard for her. And as I've said before, you will see the same thing in Therese. You know, after getting close to Therese and now to Zelie, there is a, the the adjective that I would use is, they are relentless when they decide to love or to see something through or to give all that they can, to, you know, that there's a relentless quality about it. Uh, I've sometimes found myself saying, Therese, you're a woman of steel. You know, the only thing that is sentimental, flowery, and so forth about Therese is her vocabulary, her, her language, which she borrows from the environment in which she lives. But what she's saying through that language, you can compare one of her letters using that language and a letter of another person using the same language. Though the language is same, what's being said in the one case and others and the other will be very different. Therese speaks, for example, of casting flowers. You know, As a young girl, they would throw roses, rose petals on the the Blessed Sacrament during the procession of Corpus Christi and so on. And so she uses that language, which seems very almost childish, uh, sentimental, but what she means is steal. Whatever it costs you, love as much as you can in every little circumstance of your life. And then you throw these flowers of these acts of love to the Lord, and he mingles them with his grace and sends them as a shower of blessing. Upon, She says, the church militant in this world and the church suffering in purgatory. Because that's another key question, and she raises it in the story of the soul. All right, so the little way means don't miss, she says, not one look, not one opportunity, not one word that can be of love for another person. All right, then she says, well, Jesus, of what value are these little nothings? In themselves, not much. But you cast flowers. That's what the image means. You give them to Jesus. And then he takes them, fills them with power and grace, and sends them as a shower upon the church. That's why she's the patron of the missions. You know, even though she lives so enclosed, she has this ample perspective of how her life is blessing uh, so many others. Then she says here, Oh, well. I'm truly not very pleasant. I looked up the French there. I'm not, je ne suis pas bien aimable. These are translated well, these letters. Oh, well, I'm truly not very pleasant. Fortunately, I'm still willing to admit it, but I don't know how to show signs of affection. I feel the sentiments inside. And now look what she says about her brother. So she's writing to her older sister. I believe I wish for my brother's prosperity more than mine. I have a burning desire to see him. So that's that love, what I mean to the end. It's not just pale, you know, or lukewarm, but there's a great energy in this. I have a burning desire. Can you hear Teresa's language in there? Woman of desires, you know, the great desires. I have a burning desire to see him happy, him and his wife, and I would be ready to make every sacrifice for their happiness. Then look at the next sentence. And you know that she's not just saying pious things. She never does that. She's simply speaking from her heart. If I didn't have a home and children, I would live only for them. That is for his brother, her sister-in-law, and their children. And I would give them all the money I earn. But since I can't do that, God will provide. Certainly people like them are bound to succeed, and I have complete confidence in them. Unfortunately, poor Isidore has made hardly any profit from his drug business, the second business he starts, and yet he works hard. This saddens me for him. All right, one month later, and this is to her sister-in-law, and this is about Sunday observance. That's why I've quoted this. It hurts me that my brother is worried. So what, what hurts her? It's all, again, it's the other, that she takes so to heart. However, I understand because I worry over a lot less. Now, she says this is one of these, for me, somewhat puzzling things. But it's especially the little things that bother me the most. When it's a real misfortune, I'm completely resigned to it and await God's help with confidence. And I think you do see that at times. Remember when the uh, the, the Prussian soldiers come into Alanson, and she says, everyone is crying except for me. So th- there is something there. I don't think any of the important things in her life are exempt from worry. Look at Leonie and, and so forth, or her brother here, and so on. I certainly share a very large part of your troubles. And look at this. I'm as sensitive to yours as I am to mine. How could Celine Guerin, her sister-in-law, not love this sister-in-law? You know who approaches her with such love. But I have the firm hope that this time of trial won't continue the business Why I am so confident and nothing can take that away from me is above all the edifying way in which you keep Sunday holy. So we may have an indication here that Isidore is moving closer to his faith at this time. It's hard to doubt that uh, his uh, wife would not have been a, a wonderful influence in that way. As for me, I'm going to be very careful not to buy anything on Sunday anymore. I'm not as strict about this as you and my husband are. For example, when I need a small loaf of bread for my children, I have it bought. But very often I admire what she calls Louise's scruples. Very often I admire them. So he's more strict about this than I am, but there's something that I find myself admiring in his strictness on this. And I say to myself, here's a man who never tried to make a fortune, which he didn't. When he set up his business his confessor told him to open his jewelry store on Sunday afternoon. And the reason for that was that it was a common practice on Sunday afternoon that people would go out walking. So the streets would be thronged with people just out walking and they would walk by the window and the door to the jewelry shop. Many people would would actually go in and conduct business. And so all of the shops were open because they knew this was an important time for, for business And the confessor here gives Louis permission to do this, but he doesn't take it. He didn't want to accept permission to do so, preferring to pass up good sales, and he certainly lost many because of that. And nevertheless, he's rich. Rich is probably saying a little too much, but he's doing well. As I said, one of the uh, authors describes their family, I think, very well as rising lower middle class. That's a, a good way to describe them. So he won't do business on Sunday afternoon. He's so strict on this, but yet his business is doing well, and she attributes it to his care for Sunday. I can't attribute the affluence he enjoys to anything other than a special blessing, the fruit of his faithful observance on Sunday. Now let's watch Zeli reaching out to help another woman. It's almost like anyone in need, as I've said to you before, the back door of their house in Alençon, which gave into the kitchen, was always open to any needy person who needed food, and they all knew it, and a lot of them came there. So she's writing to Pauline, I can't resist the desire to write to you today. This is going to do me good. She has just taken them back to Le Mans to the school. It's a few days later. I can't resist the desire to write to you today. This is going to do me good because I think about you all day long. As I said, you know, a deep bond develops between uh Zelie and Pauline in the final years of her life, as Pauline is now getting older. My memory of you isn't fading. That is to say, we saw each other, I think it was three days earlier, but my memory of you is uh is not fading, it's still alive. And even more, it's just the opposite. I've never missed you so much. Even that boarding school, that was not easy for the family. And she describes in some of the letters, the tears in the girls as uh, they would take the train to Le Mans and be separated. And it was very hard for her too, but certainly it turned out very well for the sisters who went there. I never missed you so much. And there are two reasons that she gives here. This is probably because you returned to school alone. Marie at this point has completed her studies. So Pauline is now alone at the visitation. Then you see my affection for you is growing from day to day. You're my joy and my happiness. And that probably is a good description of Pauline throughout all of her life. Uh, She was a rock on which people could lean and had a warm heart, intelligent, very capable, very much a leader. Well, I must reason with myself. Look what she says here and not let my love grow too much, because if God was going to take you with him, what would become of me? She's been through this four times. When I left you Wednesday evening, I was very sad, and since you returned to school too early, just 15 minutes they could have spent further time together, I deeply regretted the quarter of an hour I would still have been able to spend with you. I waited a full hour at the station I put myself in a little corner of the waiting room so no one would disturb me, and promising myself that I would do my best to enter a compartment with women only. For three quarters of an hour, I was quiet and deep in thought when I saw a brave woman with two little children arrive. You almost know what's going to follow here. One 29 months old, the other two months old. In addition, she had two enormous packages. Seeing her predicament, I left my thoughts to go help her. This is uh, Céline. She was also going to Alençon and had been traveling for three days like this, two enormous packages and two babies, even during the night. She was bringing these innocent creatures 250 leagues, 605 miles, so very far from her home, to place them with a wet nurse in her family. As I said, this was a widespread practice at the time. And in this case, it's because she's so busy, she just can't do this, not being able to keep them because of a job she has with her husband at the law courts in Valence. I can't tell you what I suffered to see her abandoning these two poor little ones until the age of 10. In this case, it's not going to be a year, but until the age of, so another eight years or so. And yet she looked like a good mother, but she has a lot more courage than I do because I would much rather die then leave my children like that. She, on the contrary, didn't seem affected by it. Finally, I put myself to work helping this woman carry the children and the packages, but it was too much for two people. So how did this woman manage already for three days when even two people couldn't manage it? An employee, seeing our difficulty, took the child in his arms and put it in the compartment for women only. A woman who was already there made a harsh face when she saw the group of children enter the car. Now watch how Zelie deals with this. To cheer her up, I wanted to tell her the story of the long journey of this mother and her children, but she didn't answer me. Embarrassed, I said to myself, I absolutely have to know if she is or isn't a mute. <laughs> Finally, I was able to make her say a few words. Then I was happy to see that she was neither deaf nor mute. <laughs> no. There's a thread of humor in Celie. In you know, it's not ha-ha, you know, sort of superficial, but it's very much there. In Therese, we don't see it because we get everything in translation. But Therese, amongst other things, like doing imitations that just had people laughing until their tears came, she was incredibly sharp at making puns. So I'll, I'll try to give one of these if I can. And this is uh, in her last days, and she's with her sister Pauline. They're talking about her, what became the story of a soul. Pauline just mentions that, you know, this eventually, maybe the Holy Father will read this. Therese responds immediately. So, in the French, the Holy Father is Saint-Père. She says that when Pauline says this, Therese immediately responds, Nunc et Saint-Père now and forever but it's a pun saint pierre Pierre," you know and just quickly like that you know uh, she and there's a lot of this which uh we don't get because it's in translation but she was uh very very capable of this i don't know if i said that clearly enough to get it but it's it's a play on the sound of the words and to lightning fast like that make that connection is, is and she did that often finally i was able to make her say a few words Then I was happy to see she was neither deaf nor mute, and I left her in peace. That is, not completely, because we were taking care of both of the little babies. So at this point, again, she's completely involved in this situation. Pope Francis, uh, you know how he often speaks about this, to reach out to those in need. If he were here, he would say that's exactly it. It's not easy, is it? Because you have to give up your time, energy, and so forth. While talking and rocking, we arrived in Alençon. I took the tiny baby who was well-wrapped and went into the waiting room. So the woman is not yet there, the mother. Your father was waiting for me there. He noticed the package and wanted to quickly relieve me of it, but he seemed surprised to see me with such a badly wrapped package. As he realized I wasn't letting go, he looked more closely and saw a little hand come out. I told him then that I'd found a little girl and I'd brought her home. (laughs) I don't think there's any other way to read this than that she's teasing Louis, you know, uh, here. He didn't didn't look too happy. (laughs) Finally, the mother arrived. She'd stayed behind to check her parcels. I carried the little girl to the woman's parents' house. We didn't return home until midnight. So she's given up the whole of the day to assist this woman who, how could she have managed without that, you know? As you see, my dear Pauline, I have the luck of always finding little children along my way. When we went to Lisieux, so that's just recently, the last summer, it was the same thing. You'll remember for a long time, won't you, the good woman with her two infants over on the train who shouted during the entire journey. All right, let me read, read that again. The good woman with her two infants, and this is the woman now, who shouted during the entire journey much louder than her two little ones. So the two little ones are making a lot of noise, but the woman is shouting even louder than her, her two babies. Marie felt so awful about it, she began to cry. My brother made fun of me as much as he could, and he wasn't wrong, because that woman was able to do without me much better than the one on Wednesday. So there again, she goes to try to help this woman. I hug you with all my heart. Uh, Let's just look at a few other words here, and this is from that book that I've mentioned in which Celine talks about her mother. When she could not go by herself, Mama frequently sent Louise, the maid, to render assistance to needy families. In after years, Louise testified to these acts of charity. I alone know how many two-franc pieces, as so money as well as food, as dishes of stew she sent through me to poor persons around Alençon. So not only nearby, but it was especially her own children whom she taught to be charitable to the suffering poor. Remember how uh, Therese just delights in, in giving alms to the poor and so forth. And also to show them respect. I frequently saw them coming. This is Celine now. I frequently saw them, the poor and the needy, coming to the house and receiving food and clothing. Mother often shed tears when she heard their tales of distress. And that's from Celine's writing about her mother. Let's go back to Zélie and her letters just, just for a few more minutes here. And this is now two months later. And uh, Zélie writing to Pauline, who is at the visitation. Oh, this this I put in here because uh, it shows us Zélie reading, doing spiritual reading. My dear Pauline, at the moment, I'm reading the life of Saint-Jean de Chantal, who is the foundress with St. Francis de Sales of the Visitation um, religious community. So again, you just see that love for this particular community there. I told you this two weeks ago, and I was intending to finish the first volume in two hours. So her intention is just to go quickly through it. But I found it so beautiful that I've not been so quick to finish it. It's taken me two weeks, and I'm beginning the second volume today. I'm carried away by admiration, you know what I wonder if is at work here? Jeanne de Chantal had four children, and then her husband died, and she began to live a very devout life. She meets Francis de Sales and eventually she winds up in religious life founding this religious community. You may be getting echoes of Celie, she she I was born to have children. There are joy. I'm happy to be in the world. But there's always that love for visitation, religious life there. It's all the more interesting to me because I love the Visitation Monastery very much, but now I love it more than ever. How happy I find the people who are called to it. Finally, I don't speak of anything anymore other than St. Jean de Chantal and all that I'm reading. And now the maid steps in here. Louise is angry. When the second volume arrives, she said, well, here's another two weeks of hearing nothing talked about but St. Jean de Chantal and St. Francis. But you can see there, you know, we've probably all had that experience. I know I've had it at times where people will say, you know, that's all we ever hear about from you, you know, when you're just really excited about something you're reading. So her heart is very much in this. Now, some physical things. My poor Pauline, my hands are so cold, I'm finding it difficult to write. And that's just kind of stops me a little bit. Obviously, there's no electric or central heating in these homes. It's all fire. And she's sitting at her desk. Uh, Maybe the fire is dying down at that point, but her hands are that cold. And her eyes, too. Along with this, I can't see. And, of course, the lighting would not be very good either. And I can say I'm writing by feeling my way along. I have very bad eyes. It's my Alençon lace that tires me the least. But while writing, I see double and often have to close my eyes and cover them with my hands to rest them. It's even worse today than usual. Let's just take this last letter and we'll stop here. So, this, uh, if you look at the date, December 28th, and they are exchanging Christmas and New Year's gifts for their respective children. I'm sending you the New Year's gifts today. As we agreed, I'm giving a box of paints to Jean and a history of France bingo game to Marie. Nice, nice gifts. And then, now note this, and then Christian, Christmas shoes with little Jesuses and other things that they will like. They'll find these Christmas morning in their shoes, and it will make them happy. And it was that custom that proved to be the decisive turning point in Teresa's life, the moment that she calls the moment of my complete conversion at age 14, after 10 years of this nervous, oversensitive, tear-filled existence when she says, I made myself miserable, I made others miserable, and then I was miserable because, you know, it's all the rest of that. And she's helpless. And you can just see a little bit of the fireplace. So we are now in Lisieux, Les Buissonner, the family home in Lisieux. So it's some years later. The the basis of what happens is exactly this custom, which was uh, widely done in France, of putting the gifts of the children on Christmas morning in in their shoes. And so they'd come down and and get them and open them. And Celine has done this for Therese, who is now 14, which is approaching mature age uh, in the culture of the time. Women would get married not much older than that often enough. And this babyish custom is still being continued. Something's not right in this. Um, and I suspect that that's what is at work. When they come back after midnight mass, and so Louis is tired, it's the early hours of the morning, and he sees those slippers filled with the gifts. Therese is on her way up the stairwell. This is just my guess. My guess is that she there's a landing and then it goes up to her room. My guess is that she's out of sight, but not out of hearing. And that's when her father looks at those uh, shoes filled with the gifts and says, well, fortunately, this will be the last year. And Céline, who knows Therese, who is so overly sensitive to have her father express annoyance like this, she knows this is going to be an arrow that's going to pierce her heart. And uh, she makes a sign to Therese, don't come down yet. You know, Don't come down yet until you're ready. And that's where the decisive moment happens. Therese uh, refuses what Céline is saying, who can't believe it. She says in the story of a soul, Celine thought it was a dream, what she's seeing. And she says, with uh, my heart pounding, because this took her a lot of courage, she just goes back down the steps, she smiles, she gets the gifts, and next thing you know, they're just laughing and opening them in the usual way. And that, she said, was the moment of my complete conversion when I began what she calls my giant's course, which it really was uh, from then on. And And she says, from that time I never shed that kind of tears again. But that's the basis of it. And you see it here when the the children are still very much uh, infants. You know, I'll just say something similar to what I've said before. As we've gone through these letters, it may be that one thing or another stands out, you know, as you hear it and seems to speak. Just go back to those places, pray a little bit with them, and then we'll have the chance to share with them. Or if you find it more helpful, you can just reread them, you know, slowly on your own prayerfully. But just be attentive to what stirs in your heart uh, as you go through this. And essentially, I'm kind of doing that, what stirs in my heart, as you can see, as I go through these letters. And you will have your response to them as well. And it's proving, uh, for those in person, the sharing is proving very rich uh, as as we do this. So I'd invite those connected virtually uh, to do this individually. What speaks to your heart as you go through this? And what might the Lord be saying through that?
0: I think for some of us, one of the things that pinged my heart right away was Azeli's experience with Leonie, especially with a child that has special needs of some sort, trying to find that person who is going to understand and care and help educate my child and finding out over and over again. That this isn't going to happen. What will I do? I think many of us have had that. You know, it doesn't matter how many children you have, each child is unique, and you always have to try to do what's best for them. And so that challenge that she has, and then also the struggle of seeing injustice or something going wrong what do I do? How do I act? How do I proceed? That can be quite a challenge, even if it's in as a relative, maybe seeing a grandchild. That maybe you want to, how do I get in there and do the right thing? This is where the Martens, yet again, is a family that you can turn to in prayer and ask for God's guidance. You've been listening to the podcast, which contains the audio taken from the Discerning Hearts Retreat, Hope in Difficult Times, the Saint Therese and her family with Father Timothy Gallagher. To hear and or to download this audio or to view the video taken at the retreat, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or on the Discerning Hearts YouTube channel. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Hope in Difficult Times with St. Therese and her family with Father Timothy Gallagher.